Hachette Audio presents The Day Satan Called A True Encounter with Demon Possession and Exorcism Written and read by Bill Scott Author's Note on Names and Places Lacey is a real name of the one who reached out to me on my call-in line and began their story for me. Beyond that, I have changed the names of most participants. When you read the last chapters of The Day Satan Called, you'll better understand my desire to protect the identity and privacy of the central character in my story. I've also left out place names for the same reason. The events and conversations are all true. Introduction I'm really not crazy. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Ephesians 6.12 I never planned or even wanted to write this book. It's been years since this event happened, an event that covered 18 excruciating months of my life. I've shared it with only a few trusted individuals over the years. Frankly, I have been concerned that if people who don't know me well heard me tell this story, they would think I was crazy or mentally unstable. But my reluctance to share what happened to me was based on more than fear that I wouldn't be believed. During this event, there were death threats that both the police and I took seriously. For 18 months, my home was no longer a sanctuary. I lived in constant fear but especially dreaded nightfall each and every day. Human and inhuman voices, noises, threats, cursing, blasphemies, objects moving, doors opening and closing, strange calls and visitors at work and home. The experience was simply too surreal and too painful to want to relive. For two decades, I felt it was best not to talk about my experiences to anyone outside a small circle of friends. You would have to be crazy to try to tell others about something this bizarre. And I'm not crazy. I understand if you're skeptical already. You might be thinking it's convenient that I share my story with only a few selected individuals and then waited more than 20 years to put it in book form. True, I can't prove the details of my ordeal other than the testimony of other people involved in the events at this time. But what I am about to share with you really happened. It is my personal testimony, not an apologetic to prove the existence of the spiritual world, including demons. For any doubters, I think I understand where you're coming from. As I relive those incredible moments through writing this book, I too found it very hard to believe that these things really happened, and I was there. A lot has to do with my upbringing. I grew up in a small, very conservative, Bible-believing and Bible-teaching church. I was taught to know and love God's Word. But there were two things we really didn't talk about. The power of the Holy Spirit and demons. In other words, we didn't talk about the spirit world, at least not in the modern-day world. The only time I remember hearing about demons from the pulpit was when a missionary from Africa came to speak at our small church. It's not that my pastor and Sunday school teachers didn't believe in demons. It just wasn't their teaching emphasis. What the missionaries shared was fine with them, but probably because the demons were in a far-off exotic land and not the USA, certainly not the town I grew up in. 
the spirit world was simply not part of our world. So I never met anyone who had an encounter with demons. I never heard anyone speak of spiritual warfare. Your upbringing might be quite different from mine, but there's a good chance you were raised the same way on this point of ignoring the spirit world. Even though I grew up hearing Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12 quoted many times, quote, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly realms, unquote. I just hadn't given much thought to demons. I wasn't looking for them. I didn't believe, and I still don't believe, they're under every rock and hiding in every nook and cranny. I was an average guy who was just living a normal life. Again, the story I'm about to share is true and has not been embellished in any way to make it more fascinating and strange than it actually was. I don't believe I'm crazy, and the people around me today seem to concur. This is not a vision or a product of my imagination. It actually happened to me. I'll never forget the day Satan called. Chapter 1, The Call It was the week before Halloween in the fall of 1988. It figures. Isn't that the time you would expect a story like mine to begin? Actually, I wasn't expecting anything at all. For me, Halloween was nothing more than a time for harvest festivals, passing out candy to adorable little kids who would troop up to the door in their cute little costumes. The occasional report is someone getting their car windows soaked or egged. But not a serious holiday with spiritual meaning, other than some scary ads for movies on television. Halloween did not conjure up spooky feelings or dread. After all, I was a healthy, well-adjusted adult living in a flesh-and-blood world. Yes, I was a Christian, and I believe God's Spirit lived in my heart. I believed in angels and demons but more on a theoretical basis than as something I would ever face and experience. I was never so wrong about anything in my life. It was a typical Thursday morning as I began my normal routine, which was to head to the production studio to begin working on announcements that would play during my segment on the radio. I was a midday announcer and a production director for a radio station that was located in part of the largest church in North America at the time. The day seemed normal. Production work, phone calls, short meetings, and preparing myself mentally for my shift. A little before 10 a.m., I remember shuffling all the stuff on my desk into neat piles and then heading down the hall into the main studio where I would interact on the air for the next three hours. We had a great news team that worked across the hall. As I opened the door to enter my studio, I saw Rick, the news director, hanging up the request line phone. I was a little surprised that he was over in the main studio and that he was answering my phone. As my friend turned around and faced me, I saw that all the color had drained from his face. You've heard of people going white as a ghost. I'll never again question what that means and looks like. I literally saw someone go white as a ghost. I was taken aback. And strange for me, I was speechless. I wasn't sure what to say to him or even what to ask him. Rick sat there and looked at me for a minute, visibly shaken, 
and then said loudly and forcefully that he had just talked to a demon on the phone. This brought me back to my senses. Now, I knew it must really be the Halloween season, and someone was trying to play a joke on me. So I belted out a loud, courteous laugh, ready to give him kudos for his great acting job. He really did look scared. Rick just looked at me, and he said again, I'm serious. I just talked to a demon on the phone, and I don't know what to do. We need to do something. Again, I chuckled and told Rick that this was not real. It was just someone playing a prank. Besides, I wanted to ask him, how would you know that a demon had just called him on the phone? But despite my reservations, Rick wasn't joking. He continued to say again and again that it was a demon and that we needed to help the girl who was calling us. As I noted before, I grew up in a very strict, independent Christian church, and there was one thing we never talked about. It was the spiritual world. Of course, we acknowledged the Holy Spirit, but even he was portrayed as a rather subdued character. I loved the church that I grew up in, but I have wondered if we shouldn't have talked about spiritual warfare just a little bit. Spiritual victory was a matter of knowing God's word. Areas that might lead you astray because they were more tied to emotions were not studied, but rather avoided. Some ministers from my tradition would go so far as to say that demons, like miracles, were restricted to biblical times and didn't exist in the present tense. I stopped telling Rick that I knew he was joking, but I reminded him that it was the Halloween season. We're a Christian radio station and that perhaps the newsroom didn't get prank calls, but we got them on the on-air studio all the time. It was just some kid, home from school, who was bored and getting into mischief. I knew when I was home as a school kid, I could get into this kind of trouble. Prank calls were a staple of my growing up years. What a great place to call a radio station. You couldn't help thinking that maybe your crank call would make it onto the airwaves. Rick ignored my disclaimers and insisted it was a real call from someone who was in desperate trouble, someone who was under the influence of a demon. I asked Rick how he knew it was a demon. Bible Podcast. To support this podcast, go to nakedbiblepodcast.com and click on the support link in the upper right-hand corner. If you're new to the podcast and Dr. Hyde's approach to the Bible, click on New Start Here at nakedbiblepodcast.com. Welcome to the Naked Bible Podcast, episode 324, Psalm 91, and Demons. I'm the layman, Trey Strickland, and he's the scholar, Dr. Michael Heiser. Hey, Mike. How you doing? Pretty good, pretty good. Ready to get some uh, some topical stuff done now. Yeah, we've had a lot of interviews and now single topics, so I'm excited. And the first one yeah. seems pretty interesting. Well, you know, I, I you know the, the short version here is I've 
I've heard enough about Psalm 91 to just have it make me a little ill <laughs> when it comes to the whole coronavirus thing. So I thought, oh, that's a good place to start. You know, we'll, we'll jump into that because, you know, there's just stuff lurking, you know, under the surface that in, includes demons. You know, and, and it's always great to talk about demons, isn't it? So well, I thought that'd be a good place to start. You have a book out, so it kind of makes sense. Uh, how's that going? Any uh, updates on that? Yeah. The book's going well? Is well. The book, yeah. Well, Amazon said they were out of stock in in like ten hours <laughs> on the first day. You know, I, I heard, and, and then I went up and looked and saw that you know it was sold out. So I don't know if that was good news or bad news because there's really no way to tell. Like, does that mean that Lexum printed ten thousand of these and they're just gone like in a in a flash, or did they only print like a thousand? You know, I, who knows? So I, I actually looked today. And it said, you know, you can order the book, which is nice of Amazon to tell people. Uh, you can order the book, and it'll, your book will get here by, you know, like sometime next week. So they either have more or they know they're getting more. So I, who, who knows? The, the mysteries of Amazon, um, I, I, they're, they're sort of incalculable. Yeah. So I don't, I don't worry about them too much anymore. Yeah, there's been lots of good, uh, funny memes and uh, funny things going on about your books. For instance, you got a box full of demons. You've got uh, yep. demons is on the way. I mean, there's all kinds of funny <laughs> things that people are saying and stuff. Yep. So, uh, so that, that that's good. And yeah, then your, demons are good news. Yeah, yeah, and your trailers and stuff that you shot with Lexum, those are nice. Those are so long ago, I don't even remember them. I, 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 should, I should go up and watch one. Yeah, they're good. You know, I, I know, though, that they used um, – I don't know if it was uh, – because when we did the demon stuff, all I remember is that the room was dark, you know, because they, they wanted it dark for because it's demons, you know. And I don't know if they took a picture then or if it was an older picture, but, but I'm actually going to be on the – maybe the issue's already out. I don't even know. Um, but I'm I'm on the cover of Bible Study Magazine with one of these pictures that really makes me look kind of sinister. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, thanks a lot, it. people. Yeah, I think I saw it, yeah. <laughs> right, right. Could I have done anything to look a little more sinister for you? Um, that's that's oh, well. Yeah, that's good. I, I, yeah. have, I have my copy, sure. Mike, so I haven't read it yet, but uh, I, I did see. Oh, you got one? Yeah, I got one. I pre-ordered it a long okay. time ago, and I see. You got you know Michael Brown in there. You got Tim Mackey uh, yeah. saying a few words and Frank Turek. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it has good it has good recommenders. You know, I, yeah. I was real happy that, that the recommenders liked the book, and you know, I was a little disappointed because you know I, I had given Tim Mackey, you know, of the the Bible Project, uh, a PDF in advance, you know, to to help him prep for those videos that the Bible Project did, you know, before I I went out. And and what I wanted was his his email reply to me after he'd read the draft. He said, "Dude, this is so helpful." <laughs> yeah, you know that, that's just that's exactly what Tim would say. You know, so but but he wrote a he wrote a blurb that sounds a little more a little more academic, a little less Tim, but you know it's it's still Tim. So well, we're happy with it. Supernatural version of angels and demons. You can just have it where he just says, "Dude." Dude. <laughs> that actually would be a pretty powerful endorsement if, if Tim Mackey just said, dude, that's all you got to say. Yeah. You know, actually, 
and I sent I sent his email reply to Lexum and asked them to use it. <laughs> yeah. uh, but I think probably thought it was a joke, you know, it's just because it was just funny. Yeah. But you know, sometimes you don't get your way. Yeah, I hear you. Well, Psalm ninety one, Mike. I'm excited about this episode. Uh, can you give us a little yeah, hint well, I- at, at some of the other topics that are coming our way? Oh well, I, I I could, but I really don't want to because okay. if I, you know, we're, we're you That's know, I, I'm actually trying to avoid new Exodus stuff because we just left Exodus, so I'm actually picking my way around that. But uh, that that might factor in there. But all I'll say is, you know, Old Testament, New Testament, you know, relationship. So I don't want to commit to anything specific because something something else in the list might strike me. Uh, during the week, and I I want to do that instead, but so I'm going to be a little careful. Well, don't be shy about the Exodus stuff. We've got a good foundation of it now. So, you know, I mean, <laughs> I, yeah, I know. If you want to build upon that? That's I know. But I'm, I'm just thinking that it's like wearing out your welcome. You know, just trying to trying to stay a little, just a, a little away from that, at least for a little bit of time. But you know, we'll we'll find our way back there right. at some point. I'm sure. All right. Well, Psalm 91. Uh, I'm going to read through the psalm. It's not that long uh, to start here, and I'll, I'll sort of telegraph the places that we're going to going to spend some time camping. So what I want to do is I want to go through the psalm and make some comments as to the to the Hebrew Bible uh, context uh, of the psalm, and then we're going to drift into well, how is this psalm understood or thought about? In Jesus' day, in the Second Temple period, uh, and, and of course on into the first century A.D., which is part of the Second Temple period, and you know that's how we'll go. So we're gonna we're gonna cover both Old and New Testament here because the Old Testament stuff is gonna sort of again create a framework for what's going on in the New Testament, and it, it's actually gonna matter because here's a here's a little heads up. Psalm 91 is actually one of the places in the Old Testament that Satan quotes in his confrontation with Jesus. And and he wasn't really talking about the coronavirus. <laughs> but, you know, the, the fact that, he, that Psalm 91 is one of those places is actually interesting. And it's interesting for a number of specific reasons that I don't think will occur to, again, the, the, the normal you know, Bible reader or Bible student. So Psalm 91, let's just read it. I'm reading from ESV. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High. Let me just stop there. Isn't it interesting? Most High. Most High. El Yon. Where have we heard of Most High before? Oh, that would be Deuteronomy 32. Deuteronomy 32 worldview. Okay, you know, Yahweh dispenses you know, the nations, allots the nations to the lesser sons of God who become, again, hostile supernatural forces in the course of the Old Testament. So we'll stow that away. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. Now, pestilence, we're going to camp on that word in a a bit. Uh, It's the word dever. Uh, Interestingly enough, and this is the only time I'm going to mention this because I don't want to rabbit trail into how the Septuagint translator misread a word, but here's a good example where they do. Dever, Dalit, Bet, Resh in Hebrew, is also not just the word for plague, 
But again, Hebrew has homographs, homonyms. It's also the word for word. And so the Septuagint has, he will rescue you from the trap of hunters and from a terrifying word, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But anyway, dever is not the Hebrew word for word here. It's something else, and we'll get to that. So verse 4, he will cover you with his pinions. And if, if you're like me, I wonder, what's a pinion? Uh, the NCV, New Century Version, has feathers, so it's probably you know part of the wing or something like that, or maybe just the feathers. I don't know. I'm, I'm not an authority on the word pinion in English. And under his wings, so pinions and wings must have some relationship there. Under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. Okay. Stow that away, shield and buckler. Because the next verse, again, gets us into more of these terrors and, and threats. And again, I'll give you a little heads up. These terrors and threats, along with Dever, Pestilence, and the preceding uh, in verse, verse 3, these are going to be references to names of Canaanite deities, which, of course, to the Second Temple Jewish mind is, is going to be a demon. And isn't it interesting how if the passage is really talking about demons, that we get references to sheltering you know, the Lord sheltering us with a shield and buckler. Sounds suspiciously like Ephesians 6. Okay, Ephesians 6, 11 through 16. But okay, just hold on to that. A thousand, or let me, let me just back up to verse 5 here. You will not fear the terror of the night, Hebrew word is pachad, nor the arrow that flies by day. We'll come back to the word arrow as well. Nor the pestilence, there's Dever again, that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction, the word there is Ketev, that wastes at noonday. All these words we're going to spend some time on. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will not only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked, because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, there it is again, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague, and this this term is generic, it's naga, so it's not one of these deity names. No plague will come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you. This is the part Satan quotes. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Satan skips the next verse. <laughs> you will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. I guess Satan forgot that part. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him with long life. I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. So that's Psalm 91. And there's some interesting stuff in there. I'm going to focus on verses 5 and 6 and verses 11 through 13 for a specific backdrop. Uh, it's really specific contextualizing the psalm, both in terms of you know an Israelite reader, and then a later you know, Second Temple Jewish, first century AD reader in New Testament era. So verses 5 and 6, let me just read them again. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. So 
again, without getting into too much detail, because that would be quite possible, and I do want to get into Second Temple stuff, Dead Sea Scroll material is going to matter here, and then in the new, into the New Testament. We have this reference to Dever. You know, for those who are listening, it's, just think of D-E-B-E-R, Dever. It's, it's a V sound after a vowel in Hebrew. So we have a reference to that in verse 3, and we also get one uh, later in verse 6. Dever, I'm going to quote from DDD now, Dictionary of Deities and Demons in the Bible. Dever is one of the three proverbial causes of death on a wide scale. It is attested some 50 times in the Bible along with war, including the words sword and blood, and famine. It's mainly in Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Besides this empirical meaning, it seems to be used a number of times in a personified sense as a demon or evil deity. Now, we're going to get in a few moments to Habakkuk 3.5, where this is a little bit clearer. And Habakkuk 3.5 will not only mention Dever, it will also mention a deity known as Reshef. Um, Hosea 13.14, again, has similar language. And we'll get to those in a moment, but just sort of to, to you know, prep you with this. So Dever, again, to quote DDD once more, it seems to be used a number of times in a personified sense as a demon or evil deity. So just store that away. If we continue on, we hit verse 6. We have Ketev, that's Q-E-T, and it's the, the emphatic T in Hebrew, T with a dot underneath, Ketev, Q-E-T-E-B. I'm going to read from DDD again. The term Ketev appears four times in the Old Testament. Its basic significance is destruction. Perhaps, etymologically, that which is cut off, though the contexts suggest that other nuances are present. Various scholars have translated it as plague or pestilence in the context of its parallel use with reshef or dever. The term has overtones of a divine name because, and this is, you know, unless you have a little bit of, you know, Semitic linguistics under your belt uh, or, or you're really into etymology, Kazev, that's Q Z dot B in Ugaritic. Kazev occurs once in an Ugaritic text, KTU 1.5, column 2, uh, line 24, who appears to be a kinsman, a relative of Mot. And that is, Mot is a very famous Ugaritic Canaanite deity, the god of death. So those two are mentioned in tandem. And that, that's, that's part of the argument that Ketev is probably, you know, again, another Canaanite deity. And when we get to Hosea 13 and 14 again, uh, well, I, I might as well just read that because it, it's probably going to help here. So let me just go to Hosea quickly. Might factor in here. This is going to sound really familiar from the New Testament, but it's actually a citation from Hosea. I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol, okay, the underworld. I shall redeem them from death. O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. Now this is, again, God speaking about you know, the iniquity of Ephraim in, back in verse 12. I'm going to read verse 14 again, you know, where the Lord is, is speaking again. It says, I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol. I shall redeem them from death. Death there is moat, okay, ma mavet in Hebrew, but moat in Canaanite. O death, 
Where are your plagues? Guess what that word is? Dever. Oh, death, where is Dever? Oh, Sheol, where is your sting? Guess what that word is? Ketev. Oh, De oh, you know, Sheol, where is Ketev? You know, so so you could read Hosea 13 very easily because Mot is a is again quite a well-known Canaanite deity, personified death, and it, you know this also happens in the Hebrew Bible. Sheol is personified in a couple passages, and so is is death, including this one because death is addressed. Oh, death, oh, Mot, where are your plagues? You know, where's Dever and Ketev? Hey, Mot, where's Dever and Ketev? You know, and, and if if God is saying I'm going to ransom these people from the power of Sheol. This is a taunt. This is God, the God of Israel, saying to Moat, to death, the God of the Canaanites, hey dude, where are your buddies? <laughs> you know, they're, they're just not, uh, they're, they weren't too effective here because I'm ransoming these people from death. I'm taking them out of your hands. So again, you have a you have a flavor here of a of a pretty strong theological polemic that really involves or sort of revolves around taking these terms as deity figures, which in Canaanite texts they were. Okay, there's there's good indication they were. So you know it it, it helps sort of you know frame this discussion a little bit. Let me go back to DDD and its discussion of Ketev. You know, and of course Paul you know picks up on this this language in in First Corinthians. But we're not going to rabbit trail there today. But back to Ketev, uh, DDD says the most useful information about Ketev comes from Deuteronomy 32:24, where the following tricolon three stanzas occurs in Yahweh's curse of apostate Jacob. You know his people have apostatized. Deuteronomy 32:17, of course, which we we reference all the time on the podcast here about. Um, Israel, you know, going after, you know, other gods, the, the, the Shadim, uh, these territorial entities, again, referencing the Deuteronomy 32 worldview. Uh, Israel is, you know, runs into apostasy. They go into apostasy. And so if you look at Deuteronomy 32.24, let me just read it to you uh, in the ESV, because DDD is going to take it apart a little bit in, uh, in terms of the Hebrew wording here, but let's just get the flavor. Again, God is judging you know, his, his people, you know, for their apostasy. Verse 23, we'll start there. I will heap disasters upon them. I will spend my arrows on them. Okay, disasters is ra'ah. Arrows is just a familiar word for arrow, but it's going to become important here in a moment. They shall be wasted with hunger. This is verse 24, ra'ab, and devoured by plague. There's reshef. And poisonous pestilence, there's Ketev. So basically God is going to send these disasters on his people. But the terminology, again, in the wider Canaanite world, was, again, these, these hostile supernatural forces. So back to DDD, it says, you know, the, the, the useful information, Deuteronomy 32.24, here's what we read when Yahweh curses apostate Jacob. It says, in, again, in Hebrew, mezev or mezev sucked dry by hunger. That's one description. And then, reshef, and devoured by pestilence, devoured by reshef. DDD says, thus, hunger is probably an epithet of moat, because death you know, had been mentioned earlier. 
the god of death, Lechume devoured, can also be construed as fought against. And then it references the arrow metaphor of verse 23 that we read, reference to the, to the arrows. Pestilence is personified as Reshef, the plague god. And here's, here's the important line. Reshef in Ugaritic is represented visually as an archer. He shoots arrows. Okay, so you have Reshef, again, this, this Canaanite deity slash demon figure, you know, for in Second Temple, you know, parlance, who is, you know, an archer. So that's going to become important when we when we see references to arrows along with Ketev and Dever and Mot in other passages. All right, let's go back to Habakkuk 3.5. This is a good time to reference that. I mentioned it earlier, but Habakkuk 3.5 is kind of important now for this. This is one of these passages where Yahweh marches from the south. You know, we, we spent a lot of time talking about these uh, in the Exodus series. In verse 5, in the midst of you know, Yahweh coming from Timon and the Holy One from Mount Paran, so on and so forth, that's verse 3. When you hit verse 5, it says, before him, that is before God, like marching ahead of him. Before him went pestilence. Okay, it's Dever. And plague followed at his heels, you know, kind of coming up from behind. That's Reshef. So before Yahweh went Dever, and Reshef followed at his heels. And that, that's kind of an interesting verse, and we're going to talk a little bit about you know, why. And if as you're thinking about that, let me go back to the Hosea reference here and just read that again. So in Habakkuk 3.5, we've got, you know, two of these figures sort of in tow, you know, marching, you know, un under Yahweh's command, as it were, under his authority. In other words, they're not independent deities. They are lesser and subservient, okay? Then you go to Hosea 13, I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol. I shall redeem them from death. Moat, O death, O moat, where are your plagues? Again, where's Dever? O Sheol, where is Ketev? Okay, so you have you know these passages like this that personify these things, and scholars again have who you know muck around in these texts have again noticed that hey these same terms, you know, are actually some of the gods of these surrounding nations, okay? And and naturally they're rivals, you know, to the status of Yahweh of Israel. And and a couple of them get referenced in Psalm 91. And that's the point. A couple of them get referenced very directly. You know, we we, we had, you know, Dever there. And let's go back to you know, the Psalm here just to pick up here again. So in in verse verses five and six we have for sure Dever and Ketev then we have a reference to the arrow that flies by day. And is that Reshef? Well, it might be because Reshef is an archer. might be a, an oblique reference to him. So there, there's some kind of strange stuff going on in Psalm 91. And if we, you know, if we loop in Habakkuk 3.5 and if we loop in Hosea 13.14, we've got a number of these terms, and it, they're, you know, they're personified even in the Hebrew Bible, but they're all under Yahweh's authority. I mean, he is clearly the superior in the picture. So I'm going to go to DDD again and read, read you a little bit about Reshef. DDD says this, the tradition of Reshef as a god of pestilence is attested in Deuteronomy 32, 24, 
and Psalm 78:48. The first text, a passage of the Song of Moses, deals with those who provoked God to anger and were unfaithful. They were apostate. They are punished with hunger and destroyed by Reshef and Ketev. Quote, I will heap evils upon them, my arrows I will spend on them, wasted with hunger, devoured by Reshef and Ketev, the poisonous one. That's how DDD renders Deuteronomy 32, 23 and 24. Continuing, it says, in the Old Testament, Barad, it's another term we haven't encountered yet, Barad occurs in Psalm 78, 48, in a passage which concerns the seventh plague of Egypt, where Barad occurs in parallel with the Reshefs. Barad is lightning. Okay? And then it quotes the Hebrew text, you know, He, that is Yahweh, gave up their cattle, you know, the Egyptians' cattle, to Barad. It, you know, it's, it's lightning or, or hail or both. You know, it's Traditionally, you know, we look we look at that as a as a fire. If you remember back to the plague episodes, you know, this this these fiery hailstones. Again, the fiery part could be a way of describing lightning, lightning storm that yields hail. In other words, so he Yahweh gave up their cattle to Barad and their herds to the Reshefs. Again, lightning bolts as arrows. Okay, think of arrows. You're 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 using the language, the visual encounter, visual appearance. And then in the ancient Near Eastern world, this is going to get theologized because they don't know meteorology. They don't know, you know modern science or anything like this. So they see a lightning bolt. You know, this is, this is from the gods and it's a bad thing. You know, and what, what the Bible is going to correct, it's, going to, it's actually going to push back on this in a couple of regards. And we'll, we'll get to that in a moment. But the notion that, you know, like if you were not just an Israelite, but really anybody, that, that this is random and haphazard and, so on and so forth, and you know that the gods are like you know fighting against you and, and you know against themselves, and it's competing interest. I mean, think of the you know like, like the Greek gods and whatnot. You know, Zeus with the thunderbolts and all that. And a similar idea. You know, there, there's a certain randomness to it and, a, and capriciousness to it. That's one point that that the Bible is going to push back on, but it's also going to uh, essentially you know kind of demythologize the you know the weather stuff. But we'll, we'll get to that in, in a moment. But here back, again, the description is because, you know, it's written in the language of an observer. All right. And so the observer is going to interpret what's happening here as the wrath of God. You know, and, and that that's true. God, you know, can step in and manipulate the weather and control it and use it as a judgment. I mean, that that's just a given in biblical theology. But if it's God doing this, then it's not independent deities. Okay, that, That's the demythologizing part. Um, so these 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 things are in, in God's hand. They're not like, you know, he he, do, he doesn't need to go ask, you know, hey, you know, can you come into work early today? I got a plague. You know, can you can you show up and eat? No, it, it's not like that. It's not that kind of thinking uh, where God has to sort of send a, an evil spirit so that lightning works. And we we know that isn't the case. And again, the Bible, you know, pushes back on, on that idea a little bit. But this is a very common concept, you know, in, in the ancient world. So back to DDD, you know, in Psalm 78, Yahweh gives up the Egyptians' cattle to Barad, you know, lightning or hail, or both, and their herds to the Reshefs. In Isaiah 28, 2, Barad is paralleled with a demon in the service of Yahweh, Ketev. Okay, and Ketev is under Yahweh's authority. Uh, again, the, the biblical writers are using this notion, you know, think of it this way. They're using this notion that is widely held that these forces are, again, 
entities, supernatural entities. But what what the theological point the biblical writers are trying to make is that no, you know, God just God just does this. He can do this in judgment, or he can withhold it, you know, in, in mercy. This isn't this isn't sort of a you know a, a, a pant. It's it's not like a superhero pantheon of different forces like Storm, like the X Men, or something like that. So the Bible again actually pushes back on a little bit of this, but it it it, it uses the same language because that's what connects with the audience. Again, this is this is going to be very familiar. So DDD says in Habakkuk 3.5, we have the description of a theophany and the attendant natural phenomena. God is described as a divine warrior, a lord of light before him goes Dever, master of epidemics, while Reshef, pestilence, follows on God's heels. Psalm 76.4 mentions the, uh, doesn't have a vocalization here, but we've got the, the plural of Reshef and then Keshet, okay? an expression which could be interpreted as the reshefs of the bow, like a, like a bow and arrow, and be related to the imagery of the God armed with bow and arrows. And then it quotes the psalm. In Zion, God shattered, again, the reshefs of the bow, the shield, the sword, the weapons of war. Job 5.7, it goes on to say, is a very difficult text inserted in a passage dealing with the need, of, need for man of absolute trust in God. Here the, quote, sons of Reshef, the B'nai Reshef, are mentioned. It says, and the sons of Reshef fly high. They seem to be winged demons, particularly if we think of Psalm 91.5, where the expression, okay, kates, again, the arrow that flies, kates ya'uf, could be an allusion to Reshef. Again, that's just a smattering of, of material from DDD about Reshef. So, Again, what we've got going on here, you know, is this, you know, the Bible's dipping into and using, again, a, a matrix of ideas here about natural forces and natural disasters and weather and so on and so forth. And again, instead of affirming that, yeah, you know, they're, they're like specific, specific dudes, you know, the spiritual world that are in charge of that. Basically, it says, no, the, all of these forces in nature are at the command of the God of Israel. And it, it uses military language. It uses, you know, the the, the visualization of a retinue and, and all these things. It, you know, the, the biblical writers do these things. But their point is that, you know, the, the way that the Canaanites really think about this is is not the case because, you know, the, the Canaanite deities that you think are in charge of this really aren't. <laughs> you know, they really aren't in charge of, of of anything like this. God doesn't have to sort of fight them to get them to not do these things or to do these things. They, they don't actually have any control over this. And that's the theological point that the biblical writers in these smattering of verses are trying to make. Verses 11 through 13 read this again. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And that should be very familiar from the, the, the temptation of Jesus by Satan. You will tread, again, here's the part that isn't quoted, you will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent, you will trample underfoot. Now there, there's a number of, of kind of interesting things going on here. Uh, you know, obviously the, the, the serpent imagery is what grabs you right away. You know, we, we have these, these same terms, again, these, these serpentine terms, 
mentioned in Deuteronomy 32, again, about, you know, about the enemies of Israel, both, both in terms of human enemies and, you know, supernatural enemies. Their wine is the poison of serpents, the cruel venom of asps. You know, so there's a generic reference in Deuteronomy 32. The more interesting one to me is Psalm 58. And I'll tell you why it's interesting. Psalm 58 is considered by many scholars. We actually ought to do an episode on Psalm 58 and Psalm 82 because Psalm 58 is sort of a, it's viewed as a psalm that picks up themes from Psalm 82. And I'll just read you the first verse. This is ESV. Do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? Okay, the Hebrew is Elem. And, and basically, I don't want to say every because there's always an exception, but I'm, you know, pretty much every scholar, every Hebrew scholar, Old Testament scholar, believes that LM here is actually an old form of, of the plural of L. In other words, gods, like Elim, even though it's not spelled that way. Because we have in Psalm 89 the B'nai LM or B'nai Elim, you know, it just depends on, you know, the, the manuscript tradition and so on and so forth. Um, and and I, I, I tend to agree with that because, just just listen to, to parts of the psalm. Do you in, in, indeed decree what is right, O you gods? Do you judge the children of men uprightly? No. In your hearts you devise wrongs. Your hands deal out violence on the earth. Does this sound like Psalm 82, verses 2 through 5? Yeah, it does. You know, this, this is what they get accused of. And then it goes on, and, and it, you know, it, it says in verse 4, I'll just read, you know, the wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. They have venom like the venom of a serpent, like the deaf adder that stops its ear, so that it does not hear the voice of charmers or the cunning enchanter. O God, break the teeth in their mouths, tear out the fangs of the young lions. And you can see the, the serpent and the lion imagery here that, that is operative in Psalm 91. But you can also, you know, if you're thinking Psalm 82... You know, the scripture has this notion that extends from Deuteronomy 32 and Daniel 10 that the things that go on with wicked people, wicked rulers, behind that is actually, you know, wicked supernatural beings that, that influence that chaos that goes on on earth. They don't do anything about it to correct it. And, you know, they, they either permissively let it go, or if we take the wording of this psalm, it seems a little more intentional. No, in your hearts you, you devise wrongs. Your hands deal out violence on the earth. If you go to the end of the psalm, this is another reason why people look at this as sort of a, kind of a, a maybe a dim mirror of Psalm 82, the way it ends. Mankind will surely say, or, or will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God, like a real God, who judges on earth. And if you actually look in the Hebrew text, we have, surely there is Elohim who judges on the earth. And interestingly enough, the, the, the verbal there, it's not actually a finite verb. And again, I'm sorry for the grammar lapse here, but you know, I just have to get into this because somebody's going to look at this and say, oh, you know, Mike, it should be gods, you know, in, in verse 11. Surely there are gods who judge on earth. Well, that's what he's saying isn't happening in verse 1. So that there's a problem right there. Well, it has to be plural because the, the verbal here is, is the plural participle, shofatim. Well, that, that, that's true. That's true. It's not a finite verb. 
for one thing, and therefore a participle, which is classified as a verbal adjective, which can be used substantively, in other words, functioning as a noun, can be used as a plural of majesty. And that's what you have here. There are a few of these in the Hebrew Bible where a participle functions as a plural of majesty because, precisely because, it's doing service as a noun. Okay, in a in what would be called a verbless clause, okay? So, again, just to, to lapse into that a little bit, just so that the, the listeners out there know that, yes, we can cover these bases. What you have here is a very similar call to the way Psalm 82 ends. Arise, O God, and, you know, judge the earth, you know, take the nations, you know, the, the, that kind of wording, again, however we want to translate that. So there, there's a similarity there. And, and again, my point is that here you've got a psalm that has stuff in it that sounds like Psalm 82, and yet also has this serpent language, this adder language, and this this lion language from, or not from, but but that we also encounter in Psalm 91, and elsewhere. You know, the the chaos enemies of, of Earth, okay, are are cast this way as tanin, you know, sea sea monsters or serpents. You, you've got Pharaoh, okay, you got Pharaoh in Exodus 29 and Exodus 32. You've got the whole incident with Moses and Aaron in front of Pharaoh with, with the serpents. You know, the staff becomes a serpent, devours the other two. You've got some of these words in there. You've got Psalm 74 that uses the language, you know, of the sea monsters. You know, God slays the sea beasts. And Isaiah 51.9 is another one. Isaiah 27.1 is probably, you know, the, the most famous eschatological one. I'll just read it again just to give you a flavor for the kind of language that's here. In that day, the Lord, with his hard and great and strong sword, will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent. Leviathan, the twisting serpent. I mean, there you get the serpent language. You've got, you've got Nakash there a couple of times. He will slay the dragon that is in the sea. That's Tanin, and that's the word that occurs in Psalm 91. So the, this terminology is used, again, for chaos agents, you know, either, either supernatural, emblematic, or human. I mean, the... the Again, this, it's a matrix of ideas, as I, as I often say. So what you have in Psalm 91, again, focusing on verses 5 and 6, and 11 to 13, is a lot of powers of darkness language. You've got a lot of supernatural chaos language. You've got connections to Deuteronomy 32. You've got a peripheral connection to Psalm 82 going on here. Basically, supernatural bad guys are, are littered in among the verbiage of Psalm 91. And that's going to matter when we get to the Second Temple period, and that's where we're going right now. Now, I came across a couple of articles here, and the links to these articles are going to be on the episode webpage. You probably already know that if you if you use the website you know, to get your podcast. But if you don't, go up to the episode webpage, and you'll get links to these articles. These are available online, so I'm giving you the links. One of them is by Craig Evans. Again, Evans is a very well-known New Testament scholar, and he had an article back in 2009 on Psalm 91. And it's called Jesus and Evil Spirits, plural, in the light of Psalm 91. The initial source for that was Baptistic Theologies, Volume 1, 2009, pages 43 through 58. It's also published in a book called Celebrating the Dead Sea Scrolls, a Canadian Contribution. It's edited by Peter Flint, the late Peter Flint, and a few other people, uh, which you could you know, get that book in book form, and you'd have the chapter. But anyway, you can get the essay on a link on the episode web page. 
Craig Evans himself was nice enough to post this. You know, I don't know when he did it, but he did it, so it's up there. Now, in this article, Evans starts on you know very early with this comment. He says, commentators have long suspected that this psalm was understood as offering assurance against demonic affliction. Uh, chances are very high that when you read Psalm 91, just you know, in your Bible reading at some point in life, like me, I wasn't thinking about demonic affliction at all. After listening to the first half of this podcast, you could see why they would think that way. Because it is. Okay, this is this is how they look. This is the worldview, all right? So again, Evan says, commentators have long suspected that this psalm was understood as offering assurance against demonic affliction. He says, however, the discovery at Qumran, this is where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, of Psalm 91, here's, here's the key, in combination with exorcism psalms, has pretty well settled the matter once and for all. Psalm 91 apparently was understood in the time of Jesus as offering divine assurances of protection against demonic powers. So you know, the point even then really wasn't specifically, you know, some of, some of the, the natural things that we would associate. There were people who, who read them, you know, quite transparently as demonic, you know, attacks from demons. And, and so this was, the psalm at Qumran was actually grouped in among other exorcistic psalms that are not in the Hebrew Bible, but they're, you know, they're nevertheless, you know, it was part of this group. So, Again, that's interesting, especially because Satan is going to is going to try to use this. But I should also add that it was also understood as a Psalm of David. Now, if you go in your in your English Bible, you go to Psalm ninety one. This one doesn't have a superscription; it doesn't say Psalm of David, Psalm of Asaph, or anybody else. Okay. Well, at Qumran, that's the Dead Sea Scroll version of the Psalm, and, it, and it's the Psalm. It just it has a superscription. And it's a Psalm of David, which gives it the messianic flavor, does it not? Okay. So again, there's another little thing running under the surface that's kind of interesting. Now, you know, we could. I'm gonna I'm gonna link out. In fact, I'm gonna go to uh, just open up with my software here. Um, I'm gonna go to the Dead Sea Scrolls Study Edition, and Evans just gonna back it up here. Okay, I found it. Uh, Evans is going to. Uh, reference 11Q, let's see, 11Q5 first, and then he's going to go into 11Q11, which is this collection of exorcistic psalms. I'm, I'll read here 11Q5. Uh, when I say the word blank, it just means that there's there's a gap in the text, all right? So blank, you know, initially, and then the, the editor presumes that there's some note about these are the compositions of David because the, the, line that, the first line that actually shows up is, And David, son of Jesse, was wise, and a light like the light of the sun, and learned, blank, and discerning and perfect in all his paths before God and men, and, blank, line four, Yahweh gave him a discerning and enlightened spirit. And he wrote Psalms, 3,600. That's a lot more than we get in the book of Psalms, by the way. So David writes 3,600, and he wrote songs to be sung before the altar over the perpetual offering of every day. For all the days of the year, 364. And for the Sabbath offerings, 52 songs. And for the offerings of the first days of the months. 
and for all the days of the festivals, and for the Day of Atonement, thirty songs. And all the songs which he spoke were four hundred and forty-six. Okay? So we got a three thousand six hundred number, we've got four hundred and forty-six. And this is this is the end of line nine, and songs going into line ten. He also wrote songs to perform over the possessed for the total was 4,050, all that stuff all together, 4,050 items that David wrote. Verse 11, all these he spoke through the spirit of prophecy, which had been given to him from before the most high. Okay, that's 11Q5. So we learned David was quite prolific. And among the stuff that he produced were four songs to perform over the possessed. It seems these four psalms were discovered providentially, coincidentally, however you want to look at that. These four psalms were discovered in the same cave. They were labeled 11Q11. There were three new psalms in this group and Psalm 91. Now the ones that are not in the Hebrew Bible, are very clearly exorcistic psalms. They're all fragmentary, but all of them mention demons with confrontational language. And then you get Psalm 91 in among them. And I'm going to read you, again, a lot of this is fragmentary. This is 11Q11, first column. Uh, we get a reference in line 40, Yahweh. Line 5 contains the word dragon. Uh, you know, Then you have the earth. We get the word exercising as, as in exercising demons in, ver in line 7. Uh, line 10 is the word demon. I mean, it's just a few words. Column 2 is a little bit more, and interestingly enough, it mentions Solomon. Line 2 says there's a blank, and then Solomon. He will invoke, and then a blank. And then the next line is the spirits and the demons, you know, blank on either side. So, again, you, you get this, okay, we got Solomon looped in here. Well, it's the Psalm of David, and okay, it's Davidic, and the line of kingship, and, all, and demons. All right, so you get a little feel for that. Column three, again, is, is kind of more of the same thing. Uh, I want to get to uh, the fifth column here, column five. It has, you know, uh, it's got a, got a good amount preserved, but it's, it's really interesting. It, line three, it says, the volunteers of blank, and then it actually names Raphael, okay, the, the archangel. Raphael has healed them. Line four, of David, against and then a long blank, and it ends with Yahweh. Line five, the heavens, when he comes upon you in the night, you shall say to him, who are you? And you're going to love this. Line six, who are you, O offspring of man and the seed of the holy ones? Does that sound familiar? Can you say with me, Probably, if there's children there, you probably want to say this, but bastard spirits demons. Okay, this is this is a Genesis 6 language you know, connection. Who are you, O offspring of man and of the seed of the holy ones? Your face is a face of delusion, and your horns, your horns are horns of illusion. You are darkness and not light. Line 8. Injustice and not justice. The chief of the army, Yahweh, will bring you down. Then verse 9, to the deepest Sheol, he will shut the bronze gates. I mean, again, does, does this sound familiar? Uh, this is, again, part of this material in 11Q11, in which, right after this, in the next column, 
we get Psalm 91. You know, in, in its entirety, it's not completely identical because uh, Solomon, well, that, that's a targum. I, I don't want to say that, but there are there are Aramaic translators that read into a little part of this, but but it, it's it's very 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 close, you know, to, to the Psalm 91 that we have. It's basically identical, but not not completely. But it begins this way: of David, <laughs> okay. you know, and, and we get we get this this of David, and they they have it, you know, there it is bracketed here, but but the Septuagint of this psalm, you know, has the superscription, so that that. And the Septuagint is going to align well with this, and so they're figuring this is this is sort of the Hebrew original here. Uh, in the shelter of you know the Most High, shadow of the Almighty, so on and so forth. So you, you get Psalm 91 there, and it goes down through about verse 14, parts of verse 14. So Psalm 91 again. This is this is why scholars look at this, and they go, hmm. Sure looks like, in the words of Evans, the appearance of Psalm 91 in 11Q11 strongly suggests that this psalm was understood not only at Qumran as an exorcism psalm, but was understood this way among the Jews in the time of Jesus. And I agree. I think Evans is tracking you know, well on that. So a couple of specific items. Again, I, I looped in the Septuagint. So the Septuagint attributes the psalm to David. Again, again, through the, the, the fancy and wonderful world of textual criticism, the, the, the material at Qumran here in Psalm 91 aligns very closely, you know, with little idiosyncrasies we'd get in the Septuagint, uh, you know, as opposed to the MT. And so it, it, odds are very high, very high, that uh, this would, would have been the Hebrew underlying Septuagint. And so the scholars feel quite confident in saying, you know, this one had a superscription as well, because the Septuagint one surely does. Again, you know, maybe it didn't, but it, it, it's it's a good argument. It's it, it's sound in its reasoning. Uh, another thought is again one of these exorcistic psalms. Okay, one of these exorcistic psalms. I, I didn't read all of them, but the whole lot of them. One of them mentions Russia by name. Again, and and we and we have again the reference in Psalm 91 to the arrows, which we talked about earlier. So, so what I'm trying to do here is I'm trying to create sort of a a, a picture context of a framework for how people in the first century when, when you, you know, if you were doing the sword drill Psalm 91 what's that about you know chances are there's going to be somebody in the crowd probably more than one that would say demons you know exorcism okay, because th th this content is in there um, again it, it's it, it shouldn't be it wouldn't have been a foreign thought again to somebody in Jesus day but you know to us we're not you know we're, 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 we're reading this filtered through an English translation so it's really hard to pick this up and plus you know we wouldn't have the context of Qumran and all this other stuff and the Septuagint we need to give, give the Septuagint some due here so Evans also writes the content of Psalm 91 readily lead, lends itself to an exorcistic function verse 3 promises deliverance from the deadly pestilence while verse 5 promises the faithful person that he will not be afraid of the terror of the night or the plague that rages at noon uh, by the way, that is not the way plagues actually work. You know, natural forces, they don't like time themselves. The creatures mentioned in verse 13, you know, serpent, sea monster, and the like, were sometimes understood as demonic beings. As already mentioned, the sea monster, and Tanin in verse 13, also appears in line 5 of, again, one of these exorcistic psalms. So these exorcistic psalms have the same vocabulary as Psalm 91, and Psalm 91 is lumped in there, including you know, among them. Uh, Evans also throws in a note here that I 
you know, I, I think is, is worth mentioning that the Aramaic translator, the Targum translator of verses 5 to 10, in, it in, it's very clear that he took it as an exorcistic psalm, and he loops Solomon into this. I'm going to read you the, the, the Targum translation that Evans has uh, referenced in his, his article. You will not be afraid of the terror of the demons. <laughs> it actually puts the word in there. You will not be afraid of the terror of the demons that go about in the night nor of the arrow of the angel of death that he shoots in the daytime. You can see how the Targum is, is expansive here. Nor of the death that goes about in the darkness, nor of the company of demons that destroy at noon. You will call to remembrance the holy name, and a thousand will fall at your left side and ten thousand at your right hand. But they will not come near to you to do harm. You will only look with your eyes and you will see how the wicked are being destroyed. Solomon answered, <laughs> and this is what he said, because you, the Lord, are my refuge. In the most high dwelling place, you have set the house of your Shekinah, the Shekinah, the Shekinah. The Lord of the world responded, and this is what he said, no evil shall befall you and no plague or demons shall come near your tent. If you compare, you know, what, what's going on in the Hebrew and the Aramaic, it's, it's you know, first, you know, couple of verses. Uh, sort of already set the stage for this Solomonic language. Here's the first couple, you know, two verses two and three. Hebrew has, he will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, for he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. The Targum says, David said, I will say to the Lord, and then there's a, a gap, an ellipsis, verse three, for he will deliver you, Solomon, my son. <laughs> you know, put Solomon right in there from the snare and the obstacle, from death and confusion. So it takes line, the line from verse 3, for he will deliver you, this generic you, and the Targum translator interpreted that as David speaking to Solomon, his son. That's how Solomon gets looped in there, and he gets looped back you know, later on as we read. Now, again, let's, let's sort of pool all this data and think about Psalm you know, 91 and how to, how to read it. And then we'll, we'll get into uh, you know what what happens with with Jesus real briefly. You know, to me, it is important that we have a, a tradition that there's a superscription here in the Septuagint, and again, very 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 likely uh, in, at Qumran for this being a Psalm of David. Again, which certainly gives it a messianic feel. It's also really important that Psalm 91 is lumped in with exorcistic psalms at Qumran. And those other exorcistic psalms in which it is bundled have, again, very clear, you know, demonic, sinister, you know, powers of darkness language in them, some of which is also in Psalm 91. And I think that's important. Um, the, the name, you know, the inclusion of Reshef and that other stuff I think is important. Um, again, just the ancient Near Eastern, the Canaanite backdrop that we talked about earlier. Uh, is important. I mean, the, the, to me, these things need to inform how we read Psalm 91 and then how we understand its use and, and Jesus' rebuttal in Matthew 4 and, you know, it just accounts of the temptation there. So in biblical days, you know, in, in the wider ancient Near East, I think we could say this, you know, natural disasters and disease, you know, were linked to demons because they were a threat to human life. They're, you know, they're they are chaos forces that just happen to people and, and again, that's going to get you know linked to the notion of supernatural chaos forces. Uh, there, there's an Old Testament scholar from the Netherlands, Dr. Garrett, and I'm hoping I get this this name right. Uh, 
Vrugden Hill. I'm not sure that's correct. But you can also find uh, a paper, a short paper that he wrote uh, online. I mean, we have, we'll have this link on our website as well. Uh, Demonic Doom, Psalm 91, and the Threat of Evil Spirits and Demons. It's also very good, very interesting. His short article actually sort of sketches out his own research. He has a, he has a book coming out um, on Psalm 91. It, it's not it's not shipping yet. I actually looked it up because uh, we, we have corresponded briefly. Um, it's it's published by Brill, so it's really expensive. But you know, hopefully it'll come back in paperback. Or if you're at SBL this year, you can get it at a discount. But uh, it's a book specifically on Psalm 91 and, and this you know, demonic aspect, uh, demonic you know orientation of the psalm. Now, in his in his short paper, when he's talking about his research, he you know, he, he describes some of the things that he investigated, and he writes this. He says, in chapter 3, we, you know, he, you know, he's using the editorial we, in chapter 3 we asked, which place do demons have in the worldview of, the, of ancient Israel? What did the Israelite men and women think of demons? Did they play a part in everyday life? On which fields of life do they experience the activities of demons? So he's asking these worldview questions. Then he goes through, um, one, at one point in the article, of course, the book, he goes through Jewish incantation texts or Jewish magical texts, as scholars like to refer to them. Um, these are, you know, they would write these in bowls and cups. You know, we have pieces of pottery or, or sometimes the whole thing um, or pieces of jewelry, things that you would wear on, on your person, on your body. Um, they're, you know, I hate to use the word spell, but, you know, but, you know I, I guess that's fair. You know, incantation sounds a little more neutral. But they're, uh, they're, they're short written prayers, and I guess you could call some of them spells, that's probably fair, uh, to ward off demons. And he actually, actually gives an example of one, uh, again, this is Jewish material, uh, of, of one that comes from the, again, he's uh, at Cairo uh, in this short article. And he writes this, the amulet mentions the name of the woman who was wearing this thing. Uh, Habiba bint Zorah, it is possible that amulet was worn as a kind of necklace or that the amulet was located near the place where she would give birth to her child. On the first column, the purpose of the amulet is stated, namely, quote, to drive away all kinds of demons and demonesses, lilies and liliths, evil diseases, harmful male spirits and harmful female spirits and evil spirits, male and female. I mean, just run the, run the gamut here. So that she hurt the baby be healthy and protected. Well, it could be the baby or the mother. I mean, we'd have to we'd have to read the full book, I guess, to determine how that determination is made. So that she be healthy and protected from any harm for all time. Between the lines of the incantation, we find on the first column a reference to Psalm 91. The psalm is cited according to the principles of Notarikon and uh, Dr. Uh, Vrugden Hill defines that for us in a footnote. I'll read the footnote. Uh, Vrugden Hill writes, The word notarikon is borrowed from the Greek language and was derived from the Latin word notarius, which means shorthand writer. It is a method of deriving a word by using each of its initial or final letters to stand for another word, to form a sentence or an idea out of the words. So, I mean, this was just sort of a, I don't know if, I don't, I don't, it's probably not a memory technique. Maybe it would become that if, you know, you, you made one of these and then you just, you know, you, you prayed through the psalm or you recited part of the psalm and this would help you to do that. Or it could be supplemental. You know, you, you could be kind of uh, 
you know, orienting a prayer around, uh, in this case, Psalm 91, and adding these other details, you know, based on, you know, your, your, your memory cue would be the first or last letter of a line in the, or a word in the psalm. So these are the kind of texts that um, he deals with in this book. But what it shows is, again, that, that there were people who quite obviously, again, considered Psalm 91 to have something to do with protection from demons, okay, as opposed to protection from a cold you know, or you know, something like that. I mean, it, it, was, it, was, it was more supernatural uh, to, to them. Now, you know, from my own take, you know, as with other matters of you know, biology and understanding of nature and whatnot, you know, the, you know, it's easy for us to look and say, well, they didn't have you know, tools of science. You know, we know how weather works. We know how disease works. We know how contagions work, you know, all that sort of stuff. And we do. We do. So I, I think it's obvious that science has informed us how diseases and weather works. Um, again, I, I talk about this kind of thing on my FAQ. Uh, when, when, when we get comments like this you know, from people living in the second or the first millennium BC or the first century, again, and, and we do have tools of science that we can evaluate what they're saying about the natural world. That's the key thought. We can evaluate what they're saying about the natural world. That doesn't give us permission to evaluate what they say about the supernatural world, which doesn't conform to the tools and methods of scientific inquiry. Those are two different things. Even though the ancient person married the two, those are two different things. So we could say, well, you know, hey, we know how the weather works and, and it, you know, it's not empowered by a demon. You know, we get that. But that doesn't mean that the demons or the gods or, again, these, these supernatural entities, it doesn't mean they don't exist. It just means that, that certain people misappropriated an ability to them. Okay, that, that's what it means. So, you know, a lot of people want to throw out the baby with bathwater. Again, you know, again, me, you know, this, you know, this, this, this podcast, we don't do that here. Uh, we, we, we try to be fair uh, with the worldview and with the data. And in this case, uh, you know, these passages weren't designed to tell us how the natural world works. Uh, they just weren't. You know, God chose writers who didn't know these things, and, and, and he knew that. So they're, they're not doing science, they're doing theology. And so we don't have the authority to use science, a thing they're not writing about, to dismiss a thing they are writing about. And that, and that scripture affirms, again, a supernaturalistic worldview. So I think, I think Habakkuk 3.5 actually helps here. It doesn't you know, sever a link between what's going on in the spiritual world and the human world. It, it, you know, it doesn't do that. Uh, you know, God can you know, do something to influence the weather as a judgment or as a blessing. I mean, you know, God can do these things. They're not, they're not you know, out, out of the purview of divine activity. But the point is that it's God. It's not lesser, inferior beings, you know, who are who are doing this. And again, I think Habakkuk three five helps there. Um, you know, such things, Scripture affirms, operate under the sovereignty of God. And to get the message across, you know, get that message across. You know, Habakkuk three five has the Canaanite deities or the, the demons again in Second Temple thinking. You know, recall that Daimonion, you know, has sort of a generic term for a lot of these uh, entities. Uh, it it has the Canaanite deities that were thought responsible for such things held in check by Yahweh or in some sense displaced uh, by Yahweh as to their presumed abilities. Now, from my demons book, I'm going to read a little paragraph here. 
I write, in addition to symbols representing the encompassing reach of chaos, biblical writers use the names of deities from Canaanite religion attached to specific natural phenomena and illnesses. Unlike their polytheistic counterparts, they did not have distinct deities acting independently of the true God in charge of those forces. Just as death itself was under the authority of Yahweh, so were disease and natural disaster. Yahweh was the lone sovereign. For example, when Egypt was punished with plagues, it wasn't because Yahweh had to request the services of a deity or a demon. The Most High either acts unilaterally or dispatches a supernatural underling to dispense judgment through such disasters. In other words, he's the one in charge. So, again, that's from the, the New Demons book. You know, the end result is that it shouldn't surprise us that ancient people presumed the gods or demons were behind natural forces. You know, it, it, that shouldn't surprise us. As Christians, you know, we can affirm the general idea— you know, God is in control, but deny that demonic entities are are the ones like you know pulling the levers here. Uh, biblical theology has God in control of such things, but as Jesus himself points out in Luke 13, and we need to loop Luke 13 in. This is not the temptation. This is something I blogged about on my website. As Jesus himself points out in Luke 13, it's not like we should think God is pushing buttons on every event in the natural world or aiming at wicked people. When things happen, some things just happen. You know, that, that is the way the world works. Imperfection is part of the created world at the beginning, and its imperfection is made worse by the fall and its curses. The fall didn't result in demons being assigned to diseases and disasters, nor is there any biblical indication the world was created that way. You know, Habakkuk 3.5 is an example where the biblical writers try to push back on the common thinking and I think correctly frame these things. But again, I will link to the to my thing on Luke 13 as well that I wrote recently on on the episode webpage. So let's get to Jesus and ask ourselves the obvious question. You know, we'll go to Matthew 4 here just so that we get uh, the flavor. But this is a really common uh, passage. I think all of you are going to be familiar with it. Let's just read this. So he, you know, Matthew 4, 1, that Jesus, Jesus was led by the Spirit in the wilderness and other Gospels say he was compelled by the Spirit to go out into the wilderness. Of course, that's where you would find the devil, the, the domain of death and, and, and chaos, that which is anti-Eden. All right, He goes out there, he fasts 40 days, 40 nights, and he's hungry, and the tempter shows up, Satan shows up, and then he starts you know, talking to him. We get this conversation. And in verse 3, the tempter, Satan, says to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he, Jesus, answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Verse 5, Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, this is verse 6, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. So that's where he quotes Psalm 91. Now, again, the obvious question is, why would, why would he pick that psalm? You know, why would he do this? Again, my take is that Satan knows the content of the psalm. He knows how people think about the psalm. People think about Psalm 91 as an exorcistic document that Yahweh and David and the son of David, the Messiah, has command over demons. And, and surely, surely, 
if this is the case, I could ask you to throw yourself off the temple, you know, off the pinnacle of the temple, and his angels will keep you from harm. So let's see. Let's see. If you're really the Messiah, you should be able to th jump right off here and get rescued by angels. And then we'll know that you, in fact, are superior to demons, to the guys who work for me and, and even me myself. So well, let, let's see that. Now, there are a couple of ways you could look at this. You know, one is he's using the psalm to have Jesus prove the point and quote-unquote win the confrontation. You know, show your mastery over the powers of darkness. Show your status as, as the son of God. You know, show your status as being, you know, really equal to Yahweh. And when we get right down to the rest of the Old Testament theology about the son of David, you know, you're, you, you know the Messiah is you know, God. Let's see that. Show us that you're superior to Dever and Ketev and Reshef. Oh, you know, we, we want to see that. Prove it. Prove it. Now, what, what does Satan have to gain? You know, I, I look at this and think it's a fishing expedition. Let's say that Jesus says, okay, here we go. You know, Geronimo, you know, and he, and he takes off, you know, over the, over the pinnacle of the temple. Now, <laughs> you know, think about it. You got two outcomes. One is that angels show up, catch him, and say, okay, point proven. You know, like, like what does that do? The other one is Jesus hits the bottom and dies. <laughs> okay. and, and, you know, God has to raise him up to make the plan work. Oh, and wouldn't that be interesting? Because if that happened, Satan would know that if this guy dies, God's going to bring him back to life. And, and I, would, I would assert that God and Jesus don't want Satan to know that. All right? And the first option, that Jesus jumps and is caught by angels, that isn't the plan. And not only that is, isn't that the plan, but Jesus is not the monkey to Satan's organ grinder. Okay? He is not here to perform for Satan or anyone else. He's on a mission. He knows what the mission is. Frankly, your request, Satan, your challenge can be safely ignored. Okay, It can be safely ignored. It serves us, me and my father, no purpose to entertain you or inform you in any way. So what does Jesus do? He responds with scripture and says, Again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test, which to me, I read that as a double entendre. <laughs> you know, he, he's, he's saying, look, I'm not going to put God to the test. And, and it's also kind of, it can also be read like, you shouldn't put God to the test and you're putting me to the test. Do the math, dude. Do the math. But he just, he's not going to perform. He's not a performer. He owes him no information and no entertainment. And I think, you know, for our application, you know, why even mention this? I mean, it, it, I think in our, in our day and age, we're going to end with this. You know, the, the, the point is not, again, just arcane knowledge about Psalm 91. I wanted to do all that to, to make the point that, yeah, yeah, you know, Jesus is, you know, in theory, you know, Jesus could have jumped off, been rescued. And, yeah, prove the point. 
I am superior to all these things. I'm, I'm superior to every, every knucklehead, every supernatural knucklehead named in Psalm 91. There you go. But Jesus doesn't do that. He does not presume to act in a way that is contrary to what God wants him to do. And that ultimately is contrary to the point of the psalm. And I would just suggest, you know, to to us that it might be a good idea to think of Psalm 91 the way it's supposed to be thought of. I mean, this is a protection from supernatural darkness. So, you know, what we've said today about Psalm 91 and Psalm 91 itself, this the general teaching point here is not that this material is supposed to give us a video game or a professional wrestling analogy for the pecking order of the supernatural world. That's just not what it's supposed to be, and it's not what we're trying to do here. You know, we, we shouldn't over-literalize the material for the purpose of analyzing, well, which disaster I, did I hear about on TV was demon-caused or not? You know, like, okay, you know, is the virus, you know, the work of Satan or demons or, you know... Okay, if you're using Psalm 91 to do that, that is as much a misuse of the psalm you know, as, you know, as, as a misuse of any other passage. I mean, it, it, it's just not what it's there for. Rather, the psalm is a messianic psalm about David's, David's agent, his, his ultimate son. Okay, the Davidic Messiah's power over forces of darkness. Okay, that is what the psalm is about. It's also not a psalm that teaches us we won't get sick. The psalm is about the victory, again, over supernatural darkness. You know, God is in control of the forces of nature. He is not powerless to protect us as though he isn't in control of nature. But Psalm 91 is ultimately not about, you know, specific calamities and forces of nature. It doesn't guarantee you won't get sick or won't get hit by a hurricane or will never live in a place that gets an earthquake or, you know, fill in the blank. It doesn't guarantee those things. Ultimately, it's about the Messiah's victory over the powers of darkness, and all who are in the shelter of the Most High, all who are in Christ, in New Testament parlance, will overcome the evil one and the evil ones through Christ. You know, it's his faithfulness at the temptation in this regard that is it's crucial. It's crucial to what later happens. Had he had he tipped off, that <laughs> he tipped the hand, okay, in the temptation account here. And Satan, had Satan learned that, oh, if you kill him, God's just going to bring him back from the dead. Or God won't let him be killed. See, that, that changes tactically what the powers of darkness will do about the Messiah. See, what, what God needs to happen, what the end game is, is that Jesus does die. So we're not, we're not taking that we're not putting that card on the table for Satan to learn anything. So ultimately Jesus faithfulness here in Matthew 4 which involves this challenge drawn from Psalm 91 is crucial to Jesus later faithfulness in going to the cross where he does get raised from the dead and ascends to the seat of power once more so that we reap those benefits and so that we again, are in the shelter of the Most High. We are in Christ, and we have victory over all of these evil ones. I mean, it, it, it's a coherent 
sensible portrayal, you know, not, not only in, in terms of the Old Testament, but also just, just kind of what the terms become in Matthew 4, you know, in the temptation scene. God either won't let him die, or if he does, he'll raise him from the dead. Again, if I'm, a, if I'm the cosmic genius of the supernatural evil world, therefore killing the guy isn't a solution. But that's exactly what needs to happen. And so Jesus is not putting the card on the table. So it's actually really interesting. I mean, Satan kind of knows where to hit him. But at the end of the day, you know, Jesus is, we don't owe you anything. We're not going to presume. Okay, you should not put the Lord your God to the test. We owe you nothing. No entertainment, no information. So it, it's really a good chess match when you really think about it. And again, the context of Psalm 91, I think, um, colors it in, in the right way. Mike, can you speak about um, Solomon? Uh, in the Second Temple period, their literature, I guess they didn't, the Second Temple Jews didn't freak out when they saw Jesus casting out the demons because they've been reading about Solomon as an exorcist. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. If you recall, you know, we did an old episode um, on this. It's number 87. Man, that seems like a long time ago. Google has episode 87, Exorcism of Demons as part of the Messianic Profile. There you go. You know, because in that episode, if you recall, we, we asked the question just exactly like you put it. Like, why, when Jesus runs around, you know, casting out demons, and that gets used to reinforce the idea, you know, his identity as, as the Messiah. Like, this, this has to be the Messiah. Look at that. Okay. Since there's no really, you know, to our, our reading, there's no really clear element like that in the Old Testament. You, you never read about, like, there's no episode in the Old Testament where a demon gets cast out of anybody. I mean, nobody, like, much less, you know, David or the son of David. And, and so it, it creates this sort of disconnect, like, that detail doesn't make any sense. It's, it must be something new that the New Testament writers made up, but it's not. And just like you said, they're talking about this way about Solomon. They have this tradition about David. And, and so when Jesus starts doing this, it's like, okay, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know the, he, he has just become part of the discussion. <laughs> you know, about who the, is he the Messiah? So it's, it's actually a big deal. All right, Mike. Well, that was a good one. That's basically, uh, probably a chapter out of your demons book. I would imagine this. <laughs> it actually book. isn't. <laughs> it is it actually isn't. I, I do. No, it's not. I, I do demon stuff and then, and the natural world, you know, a little bit, but I, I don't have like a chapter on Psalm 91. I reference it, but this is, this is new content. So the, so now I, I've spilled unseen realm too here on the onto the podcast. Uh, That's all right. I'll tell you, uh, love it. Anytime we can get that to happen, I'll take it. Uh, all right, Mike. Mike, squeeze that out of me, right? <laughs> Absolutely. All right, Mike. Well, that was good. We appreciate it. All right, guys. Actually, gives an example of one. Uh, again, this is Jewish material uh, of of one that comes from the again is uh, at Cairo in this short article, and he writes this, the amulet mentions the name of the woman who was wearing this thing, uh, Habibah bint Zorah. It is possible that amulet was worn as a kind of necklace, or that the amulet was located near the place where she would give birth to her child. 
On the first column, the purpose of the amulet is stated, namely, quote, to drive away all kinds of demons and demonesses, lilies and liliths, evil diseases, harmful male spirits and harmful female spirits and evil spirits, male and female. I mean, she's just running the, running the gamut here. So that she, hurt the baby, be healthy and protected. Well, it could be the baby or the mother. I mean, we'd have to, we'd have to read the full book, I guess, to determine how that determination is made. So that she be healthy and protected from any harm for all time. Between the lines of the incantation, we find on the first column a reference to Psalm 91. The psalm is cited according to the principles of Notarikon, and uh, Dr. Uh, Rugden Hill defines that for us in a footnote. I'll read the footnote. Uh, Rugden Hill writes, The word Notarikon is borrowed from the Greek language and was derived from the Latin word notarius, which means shorthand writer. It is a method of deriving a word by using each of its initial or final letters to stand for another word, to form a sentence or an idea out of the words. So, I mean, this was just sort of a, I don't know if, I don't, I don't it's probably not a memory technique. Maybe it would become that if, you know, you, you made one of these and then you just, you know, you, you prayed through the psalm or you recited part of the psalm and this would help you to do that. Or it could be supplemental. You know, you, you could be kind of, uh, you know, orienting a prayer around, uh, in this case, Psalm 91, and adding these other details, you know, based on, you know, your, your, your memory cue would be the first or last letter of a line in that, or a word in the psalm. So these are the kind of texts that um, he deals with in this book. But what it shows is, again, that, that there were people who quite obviously, again, considered Psalm 91 to have something to do with protection from demons, as opposed to protection from a cold, you know, or you know something like that. I mean, it it was it was it was more supernatural uh, to to them. Now, you know, from my own take, you know, as with other matters of you know biology and understanding of nature and whatnot, you know, the, you know, it's easy for us to look and say, well, they didn't have you know tools of science. You know, we know how weather works, we know how disease works, we know how contagions work, you know, all that sort of stuff, and we do, we do. So I, I think it's obvious that. Science has informed us how diseases and weather works. Um, again, I, I talk about this kind of thing on my FAQ. Uh, when 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 we get comments like this, you know, from people living in the second or the first millennium BC or the first century, again, and, and we do have tools of science that we can evaluate what they're saying about the natural world. That's the key thought. We can evaluate what they're saying about the natural world. That doesn't give us permission to evaluate what they say about the supernatural world, which doesn't conform to the tools and methods of scientific inquiry. Those are two different things. Even though the ancient person married the two, those are two different things. So we could say, well, you know, hey, we know how the weather works and, and it, you know, it's not empowered by a demon. You know, we get that, but that doesn't mean that the demons or the gods or, again, these, these supernatural entities, it doesn't mean they don't exist. It just means that, that certain people misappropriated an ability to them. Okay, that, that's what it means. So, you know, a lot of people want to throw out the baby with bathwater. Again, you know, again, me, you know, this, you know, this, this, this podcast, we don't do that here. Uh, we, we, we try to be fair uh, with the worldview and with the data. And in this case, uh, you know, these passages weren't designed to tell us how the natural world works. 
Uh, they just weren't. You know, God chose writers who didn't know these things, and, and, and he knew that. So they're, they're not doing science, they're doing theology. And so we don't have the authority to use science, a thing they're not writing about, to dismiss a thing they are writing about. And that, and that scripture affirms, again, a supernaturalistic worldview. So I think, I think Habakkuk 3.5 actually helps here. It doesn't you know, sever a link between what's going on in the spiritual world and the human world. It, it, you know, it doesn't do that. Uh, you know, God can you know, do something to influence the weather as a judgment or as a blessing. I mean, you know, God can do these things. They're not, they're not you know, out, out of the purview of divine activity. But the point is that it's God. It's not lesser, inferior beings you know, who, are, who are doing this. And again, I think Habakkuk 3.5 helps there. Um, you know, such things, scripture affirms, operate under the sovereignty of God. And to get the message across, and to get that message across, you know, Habakkuk 3.5 has the Canaanite deities, or the, the demons, again, in Second Temple thinking. You know, recall that daimonion, you know, has sort of a generic term for a lot of these uh, entities. Uh, it, it has the Canaanite deities that were thought responsible for such things held in check by Yahweh, or in some sense displaced uh, by Yahweh as to their presumed abilities. Now, from my demons book, I'm going to read a little paragraph here. I write, in addition to symbols representing the encompassing reach of chaos, biblical writers use the names of deities from Canaanite religion attached to specific natural phenomena and illnesses. Unlike their polytheistic counterparts, they did not have distinct deities acting independently of the true God in charge of those forces. Just as death itself was under the authority of Yahweh, so were disease and natural disaster. Yahweh was the lone sovereign. For example, when Egypt was punished with plagues, it wasn't because Yahweh had to request the services of a deity or a demon. The Most High either acts unilaterally or dispatches a supernatural underling to dispense judgment through such disasters. In other words, he's the one in charge. So, again, that's from the, the New Demons book. You know, the end result is that it shouldn't surprise us that ancient people presumed the gods or demons were behind natural forces. You know, it, it, that shouldn't surprise us. As Christians, you know, we can affirm the general idea you know, God is in control, but deny that demonic entities are are the ones like you know pulling the levers here. Uh, biblical theology has God in control of such things, but as Jesus himself points out in Luke 13, and we need to loop Luke 13 in, this is not the temptation, this is something I blogged about on my website. As Jesus himself points out in Luke 13, it's not like we should think God is pushing buttons on every event in the natural world or aiming at wicked people when things happen. Some things just happen. You know, that, that is the way the world works. Imperfection is part of the created world at the beginning, and its imperfection is made worse by the fall and its curses. The fall didn't result in demons being assigned to diseases and disasters, nor is there any biblical indication the world was created that way. You know, Habakkuk 3.5 is an example where the biblical writers try to push back on the common thinking and I think correctly frame these things. But again, I will link to the to my thing on Luke 13 as well that I wrote recently on on the episode webpage. So let's get to Jesus and ask ourselves the obvious question. You know, we'll go to Matthew 4 here, just so that we get uh, the flavor. But this is a really common uh, passage. I think all of you are going to be familiar with it. Let's just read this. So he, you know, Matthew 4:1. Jesus Jesus was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. Other Gospels say he was compelled by the Spirit to go out into the wilderness. Of course, that's where you would find the devil, the, the domain of death and, and, and chaos, that which is anti-Eden, 
All right. He goes out there, he fasts 40 days, 40 nights, and he's hungry, and the tempter shows up, Satan shows up, and then he starts you know, talking to him. We get this conversation. And in verse 3, the tempter, Satan, says to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he, Jesus, answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, this is verse 6, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. So that's where he quotes Psalm 91. Now, again, the obvious question is, why would, why would he pick that psalm? You know, why would he do this? Again, my take is that Satan knows the content of the psalm. He knows how people think about the psalm. People think about Psalm 91 as an exorcistic document that Yahweh and David and the son of David, the Messiah, has command over demons. And, and surely, surely, if this is the case, I could ask you to throw yourself off the temple, you know, off the pinnacle of the temple, and his angels will keep you from harm. So let's see. Let's see. If you're really the Messiah, you should be able to th jump right off here and get rescued by angels. And then we'll know that you, in fact, are superior to demons to the guys who work for me, and, and even me myself. So well, let, let's see that. Now, there are a couple of ways you could look at this. You know, one is he's using the psalm to have Jesus prove the point and quote-unquote win the confrontation. You know, show your mastery over the powers of darkness. Show your status as, as the Son of God. You know, show your status as being, you know, really equal to Yahweh. And when we get right down to the rest of the Old Testament theology about the Son of David, you know, you're, you, you know, the Messiah is God. Let's see that. Show us that you're superior to Dever and Ketev and Reshef. Oh, you know, we, we want to see that. Prove it. Prove it. Now, what, what does Satan have to gain? You know, I, I look at this and think it's a fishing expedition. Let's say that Jesus says, okay, here we go, you know, Geronimo, you know, and he, and he takes off, you know, over the, over the pinnacle of the temple. Now, <laughs> you know, think about it. you got two outcomes. One is that angels show up, catch him, and he's, okay, point proven. You know, like, like, what does that do? The other one is Jesus hits the bottom and dies. <laughs> and, and, you know, God has to raise him up to make the plan work. Oh, and wouldn't that be interesting? Because if that happened, Satan would know that if this guy dies, God's going to bring him back to life. And, and I, would, I would assert that God and Jesus don't want Satan to know that. All right? And the first option, that Jesus jumps and is caught by angels, that isn't the plan. And not only that is, isn't that the plan, but Jesus is not the monkey to Satan's organ grinder. 
Okay, he is not here to perform for Satan or anyone else. He's on a mission. He knows what the mission is. Frankly, your request, Satan, your challenge can be safely ignored. Okay, it can be safely ignored. It serves us, me and my father, no purpose to entertain you or inform you in any way. So what does Jesus do? He responds with scripture and says, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test, which to me, I read that as a double entendre. You know, he's he's saying, look, I'm not going to put God to the test. And, and it's also kind of, it can also be read like, you shouldn't put God to the test. And you're putting me to the test. Do the math, dude. Do the math. But he just, he's not going to perform. He's not a performer. He owes him no information and no entertainment. And I think, you know, for our application, you know, why even mention this? I mean, it, it, I think in our, in our day and age, we're going to end with this. You know, the, the, the point is not, again, just arcane knowledge about Psalm 91. I wanted to do all that to, to make the point that, yeah, yeah, you know, Jesus is, you know, in theory, you know, Jesus could have jumped off, been rescued. And, yeah, prove the point. I am superior to all these things. I am, I'm superior to every, every knucklehead, every supernatural knucklehead named in Psalm 91. There you go. But Jesus doesn't do that. He does not presume to act in a way that is contrary to what God wants him to do. And that ultimately is contrary to the point of the psalm. And I would just suggest you know, to, to us that it might be a good idea to think of Psalm 91 the way it's supposed to be thought of. I mean, this is a protection from supernatural darkness. So, it, you know, the, the, what we've said today about Psalm 91 and Psalm 91 itself, this, you know, the general teaching point here is not that this material is supposed to give us a video game or a professional wrestling analogy for the pecking order of the supernatural world. That's just not what it's supposed to be, and it's not what we're trying to do here. You know, we, we shouldn't over-literalize the material for the purpose of analyzing, well, which disaster I, did I hear about on TV was demon caused or not? You know, like, okay, you know, is the virus, you know, the work of Satan or demons or, you know, okay, if you're using Psalm 91 to do that, that is as much a misuse of the Psalm, you know, as, you know, as, as a misuse of any other passage. I mean, it, it, it's just not what it's there for. Rather, the Psalm is a messianic Psalm about David's. David's agent, his, his ultimate son, okay, the Davidic Messiah's power over forces of darkness. That is what the psalm is about. It's also not a psalm that teaches us we won't get sick. The psalm is about the victory, again, over supernatural darkness. You know, God is in control of the forces of nature. He is not powerless to protect us as though he isn't in control of nature. But Psalm 91 is ultimately not about, you know, specific calamities and forces of nature. It doesn't guarantee you won't get sick or won't get hit by a hurricane or will never live in a place that gets an earthquake or, you know, fill in the blank. It doesn't guarantee those things. Ultimately, it's about the Messiah's victory over the powers of darkness and all who are in the shelter of the Most High, all who are in Christ, 
in New Testament parlance, will overcome the evil one and the evil ones through Christ. You know, it's his faithfulness at the temptation in this regard that is it's crucial. It's crucial to what later happens. Had he had he tipped off, had he tipped the hand, okay, in the temptation account here. And Satan, had Satan learned that, oh, if you kill him, God's just going to bring him back from the dead. Or God won't let him be killed. See, that, that changes tactically what the powers of darkness will do about the Messiah. See, what, what God needs to happen, what the end game is, is that Jesus does die. So we're not, we're not taking that, we're not putting that card on the table for Satan to learn anything. So ultimately, Jesus' faithfulness here in Matthew 4, which involves this challenge drawn from Psalm 91, is crucial to Jesus' later faithfulness in going to the cross, where he does get raised from the dead and ascends to the seat of power once more, so that we reap those benefits and so that we, again, are in the shelter of the Most High. We are in Christ, and we have victory over all of these evil ones. I mean, it, it, it's a coherent, sensible portrayal, you know, not, not only in, in terms of the Old Testament, but also just, just kind of what the terms become in Matthew 4, you know, in the temptation scene. God either won't let him die, or if he does, he'll raise him from the dead. Again, if I'm, a, if I'm the cosmic genius of the supernatural evil world, therefore, Killing the guy isn't a solution, but that's exactly what needs to happen. And so Jesus is not putting the card on the table. So it's actually really interesting. I mean, Satan kind of knows where to hit him, but at the end of the day, you know, Jesus is, we don't owe you anything. We're not going to presume. Okay, you should not put the Lord your God to the test. We owe you nothing, no entertainment, no information. So it's really a good chess match when you really think about it. And again, the context of Psalm 91, I think, um, colors it in the right way. Mike, can you speak about um, Solomon? In the Second Temple period, their literature, I guess they didn't, the Second Temple Jews didn't freak out when they saw Jesus casting out the demons because they've been reading about Solomon as an exorcist. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. If you recall, you know, we did an old, episode um, on this. It's number 87. Man, that seems like a long time ago. Google has episode 87, Exorcism of Demons as part of the Messianic Profile. There you go. You know, because in that episode, if you recall, we, we asked the question just exactly like you put it. Like, why, when Jesus runs around, you know, casting out demons, and that gets used to reinforce the idea, you know, his identity as, as the Messiah. Like, this, this has to be the Messiah. Look at that. Okay. Since there's no really, you know, to our, our reading, there's no really clear element like that in the Old Testament. You, you never read about, like, there's no episode in the Old Testament where a demon gets cast out of anybody. I mean, nobody, like, much less, you know, David or the son of David. And, and so it, it creates this sort of disconnect, like, that detail doesn't make any sense. It's, it must be something new that the New Testament writers made up, but it's not. And just like you said, they're talking about this way about Solomon. They have this tradition about David. 
and and what, so when Jesus starts doing this, it's like, okay, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, the, he he has just become part of the discussion, <laughs> you know, about who the is he the Messiah? So it's it's actually a big deal. All right, Mike. Well, that was a good one. That's basically uh, probably a chapter out of your demons book. I would imagine this. <laughs> it actually <episode>. isn't. <laughs> it is it actually isn't. I, I do. No, it's not. I, I do demon stuff and then and the natural world, you know, a little bit. But I I don't have like a chapter on Psalm ninety one. I reference it, but this is this is new content. So so now I, I've spilled unseen realm two content here on the onto the podcast. That's all right. I'll tell you, love it. Anytime we can get that to happen, I'll take it. Uh, all right, you Mike. Squeeze that out of me, right? Yeah, absolutely. All right, Mike. Well, that was good. We appreciate it. All right, guys. Well-